0: Welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Just a friendly note that this episode contains some adult themes. Hello, welcome to the Penguin Podcast, where authors choose objects that have inspired their creative process. I'm Nihal Arthanaika, and with me is an award-winning comedian. He's had a sell-out solo tour his own TV shows here and in the States. He's a regular panellist, of course, on comedy programmes, including 8 Out of 10 Cats and Mock the Week. And now he's written a book, Straight Outta Crawley. Now, this is a riff on the title of the NWA album, Straight Outta Compton, which gives a clue as to how much he loves hip-hop. It's a memoir of a distinctly average human being, but Ramesh, you're not an average human being. But there are some brilliant stories in here and you are, thankfully, going to read out one of them later on. It's Ramesh Ranganathan. Ramesh, welcome.
1: Hello, Nihal. How are you? I'm good. All the better for seeing your good self. Thank you so much. I can say what an honour it is to appear on this podcast.
0: And as I mentioned at the beginning, on the Penguin podcast, we ask guests to choose objects that have inspired and galvanised them. And so, Ramesh has chosen items, including a microphone stand and, of all things, a Trading Places poster. It's a movie from back in the days. Your first object you've got for us today, Mm -hmm. it's an album.
1: Yes, it's Public Enemy. It takes a nation of millions to hold us back, which I don't know if you're aware of that. Are you aware of that work, Nihal? I know that you purport to be a hip-hop fan. Because, I don't know, you're looking for an angle? Um, (laughs) 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 Um, but but, but,
0: but, me, (laughs) thrown under. uh,
1: No, but basically, this is the album that got me into hip-hop, and hip-hop has been, as you and I know, for both of us, has been such a defining thing for me. Basically, somebody left this album at my house. This might be revisionist history, but in my mind, what happened was I heard Rebel Without a Pause and just thought I don't know what what is this man like you know that the kettle noise on that track.
0: Yeah, yeah, And just, yeah. like,
1: the the sound... It's a
0: sample of Fred Wesley blow your head.
1: Yeah, there's a new book out called Chamber Music by Will Ashen. Have you read it? It's all no. about Wu-Tang's first album. No, I didn't know, I know Will are, Ashen.
0: We used to write a hip-hop connection together.
1: Will yeah, Ashen. so there's about seven pages about that sample. If, if, you're like a, if you're, like, a hip-hop geek... Which we are. Yeah, that <laughs> book is, like, next level. But okay, anyway, the yeah. point is, is, like, I just hadn't heard anything like it and... You know, looking at the cover now as I talk to you, the imagery of the cover, the politics of the album, Chuck D's voice and Flavor Flav's voice, the characters, everything, the S1Ws, everything about it—Bomb Squad production, yeah, their logo, everything about it was like designed to hook me in. That's what it felt like. Do you know what I mean? And I was sort of one of the only brown kids at my school, and. It was like the identity politics of it all I really connected with and it basically started a love of hip-hop for me that I've never really lost, do you know what I mean? I sort of am frozen in that. My music taste from then, I was just listening to hip-hop and then it got so narrow that I would only listen to hip-hop from, like, three streets in New York. Yeah, East Coast. Yeah. Purely East yeah, yeah. Coast. No like, 2 I got so, right, okay, yeah. so narrow-minded about yeah. it. And then you start to, like, grow out of that bit, do you know what I mean? And
0: then Was it was there ever a point at which you wished you weren't brown-skinned? Oh, and, mate. And did Public Enemy have an effect on that?
1: Look, the, the truth is, like, I don't remember having any role models as such, you know, outside of... My family, you know, like public role models. And then you feel like an outsider because I was one of the only brown kids at my school. And then Public Enemy, it was just something about it that really connected with me and it felt like it spoke to me, even though their situation is so far removed from what my situation was. I don't think when they made It Takes a Nation of Millions they were thinking, they're kids in Crawley that we need to reach out to. But they did.
0: But that's probably because as you, that, that word outsider you used yeah. and hip-hop is a music for, you know, because punk, to a certain extent, I mean, if you look at some of the members of The Clash, for instance, they were public school educated, yeah. right? And then Malcolm McLaren with the Sex Pistols, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But hip-hop, there's nothing other than ghetto. I mean, LL Cool J run DMC and that. They, they weren't necessarily purely hood. But outsiders, people, whether it's socioeconomic, yeah. culturally... And you felt that,
1: right? Yeah, I did. I definitely did. And, and then when I started to really get into hip-hop, like, my family started going through hard times or whatever. and This was financially? Financially, yes. My like, house got repossessed and then my dad went to prison and the council put us in this bed and breakfast until they could find us housing. And then hip-hop was, like, a constant thing that I just kept going to. Even though my situation was nowhere near... The you know I'm I'm not saying that I went through anything like what a lot of the you know that kind of hip hop th- their circumstances grim, to it go is, through that as a yeah, child I it mean, is, is yeah, yeah but but there was something about hearing that music that you sort of think it, it, I'll be all right I don't, I don't know it was it was something it's like a, it's like a crutch do you know what I mean and so when you lean on something as much as I did during that stage, I just think it's always going to stay with you.
0: Your second object is a a really fascinating one because it's a poster from a film, Trading Places.
1: I love Trading Places. I just think it's an amazing film. How many times
0: do you think you've seen it?
1: Easily 50. uh, uh, Easily. (laughs) Easily 50 times I've watched that film. So recently I set up my garage as an office... I've got to be honest with you. I'm a bit nervous about this office thing because like, what happened was I set up my garage as an office, and then my wife said to me, "Oh, do you want to move some of your trainers out to the garage?" And then she suggested—this has just happened in the last few days—that I put somewhere to sleep in the garage because I, I mean, I think I'm being moved out of my house, man. Anyway, the point is, does this
0: coincide with that really, really fit Brazilian gardener? She's hired.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. She's doing a lot of personal training. Anyway. So I was trying to, like, look for stuff that, to go up and I thought, I've got to have a Trading Places poster in there because I've got, like, stuff that I really love.
0: Why, though? Why this film? Break it down for me.
1: Eddie Murphy was one of my comedy heroes sort of growing up. Richard Pryor was one of my stand-up heroes, but Eddie Murphy was one of my, like, just comedy heroes in terms of his movies. And Trading Places... It's got so many good things about. It. There are a lot. There are thing, there are dodgy things about it. For example, there's a train scene where there is there's blacking up. So you know there, there are issues with that movie. But there's so many good things about that film. That scene at the beginning when he's like pretending he's got no legs, and then the police officers lift him up, and then he's he's got legs, and he goes, "Oh my god, <laughs> thank you Jesus!" <laughs> it's just so funny. And then like um Dan Aykroyd's so great in it, Jamie Lee Curtis is is great. I just everyone's good at it. I love Randolph and Mortimer, you know, that that whole setup, all of that, and the social mobility thing of it, there's something enticing about that, you know. Can they swap them and see what happens? It's got so many ingredients that I found like such a hook. What I would say is that to this day, I don't fully understand the ending of that film. Like, like, like They get the orange juice, the frozen orange juice reports and then Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd say sell, buy like a 100 times and then they make a load of money. I still fully can't get my head around it, but it's a great movie. And so the reason I wanted the poster is because I love that film so much and because I do a lot of writing in my garage, like I write all my stand-up in there, I just wanted stuff... I guess it's aspiration. That's what I should be trying to do. Do you know what I mean? I'm not trying to remake Trading Places, although if you're up for it... I'm up for it. OK. Well, yeah, let's, then let's make it happen. We'll, we'll it's got a really dreadful remake of Trading Places. Only if
0: you agree to remaking Face Off with me. Do you know Face Off,
1: man? <laughs> do you know... I, I don't know if you know this about Face Off, but when they were writing Face Off...
0: Someone wrote that?
1: Yeah. Right. Well, a lot of the dialogue you'd be surprised here was improvised, <laughs> but... but but, but with Face Off, the scientific explanation for how the face switch works, they used a placeholder just to go, let's just say it's this for now, and then we'll figure it out later on, and then they just never figured it out. So so the placeholder that they originally put in place for Face Off just made it all the way to the final movie. Just nobody went, do you want to deal with this explanation that makes absolutely no sense and doesn't stand up to any scrutiny whatsoever? Nah, do you know what we've got? To, we've got to control Nicholas, mate. I, I haven't got time for that. Also, that in that film, the face waterfall thing. Do you know what I'm talking about?
0: Yes, it was on TV the other night. I came home, my wife was watching it. No. I said, "Why are you watching this colossal pile of manure?" Yeah. which is like a stain on my flat screen. Yeah.
1: And, and, and the ending of it, <laughs> where they lost their kid, so he just brings back another <laughs> kid. <laughs> And then says, Let's raise this kid. <laughs> you don't even do that with a dog. I, I just don't I don't understand it. But anyway, that's why I've not got a poster of face <laughs> off in my garage.
0: <laughs> Interesting that even though you are a huge fan of Eddie Murphy, he's not worth a tattoo. No. Pryor's worth a tattoo. Yeah. Well, yes, yeah. What do you mean, well, yeah, you've committed to the tattoo. The tattoo yeah. exists. Unless yes. unless unless I've just been a bit racist and it's not Richard Pryor and I've just gone, oh, you got Richard Pryor in your arm well, and you've gone, oh, no, it's not
1: Richard Pryor. That's... I did get Richard Pryor on my arm because his stand-up, he is the best stand-up of all time, in my opinion. Why? He was designed in a lab to do stand-up. He was given everything, right? His physicality, his voice... His terrible background that wired him differently to make him delve into those depths. But Richard Pryor, why I think he was such a genius, or why why I admire him so much, is he was on a path to being a really successful mainstream comedian. Right? He was doing all the TV shows. He was doing, and he was doing very, very unchallenging. There's nothing wrong with it. It's great. There's nothing wrong with unchallenging comedy. I've got no issue with that. i not. I'm not a snob like that. But he was doing like the TV spots, and then. He walked away from it because he just suddenly had this epiphany. He was doing like a Vegas residency and I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't know what I'm doing. And then he came back, this politicised kind of talking about the the plight of black people in America just reinvented himself. There's like a a stand-up set of his on YouTube people aren't enjoying it or, or they're, they're struggling with what he's saying he just, and he doesn't care, he's just doing what he wants to do and then he picks up on that and this new version of Richard Pryor, this honest, challenging... He talks about sex in a way that had never been spoken about before in stand-up. He talked about the plight of the black race and he talked about his own struggles. He, he did jokes about his drug addiction. He made a funny routine about when he was so high he set himself on fire. He turned that into a bit. Do you know what I mean? Like... He is unbelievable. He's amazing. His level of honesty is something that I aspire to, and I haven't achieved that yet in my stand-up. But.
0: I think calling you last born a prick is pretty honest.
1: Yeah, that is true. That is true. Yeah, actually, maybe I am prior. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> I think honesty you're pretty good with. I've seen you I've seen you annihilate people in the front two rows, fairly honestly.
1: Yeah, that's true. That is true. Yeah. But
0: but like in terms of like Or tell someone their baby's ugly in the book.
1: Yeah, but that was in the pub. They bother me in a pub, mate. So I'm going to be honest about your baby. What? Let me just clarify that. Well, that can't exist on this podcast in isolation. Do you know what I mean? And just let that hang there. I was in a pub. Let's talk about this in the book. But I was in a pub. Somebody came up to me and said, you used to go to school with my girlfriend. Tell us a joke. And I said, I don't do jokes, right? And then he said, no, do us a joke. You're a comedian. And I said, I don't do jokes. And then he said, no, do us a joke. And then I said, look, mate. Like, I said, I just don't do gags. And then he called his girlfriend over and she came over and he goes, is it a comedian you used to go to school? She goes, tell us a joke. Anyway, the long and the short of it is, I ended up just walking away. I said, I'm having a drink with my wife. I'll see her later. And then he just started going, you're not funny in real life. You're not funny in real life. And then he goes, calls over to his mate, he's not funny in real life, right? I thought that was the end of it. I thought I'm going to happily live my life never speaking to those people again. Then later on, she comes up to me with a baby in, like, a car seat and goes, this is my baby... I go, she said, this is my baby, like she was the only person that ever achieved that. Do you know what I mean? That's the way she said it to me, right? So I go, cool. Good, like, wicked. And she goes, do a joke about my baby. I'm not a jukebox. If you give me a topic, it doesn't make it easier. <laughs> she goes, no, do a joke about my baby. And I go, no. She goes, do a joke about my baby. And I go, I don't know, it's ugly, right? And then she goes... <laughs> She goes. That's not a
0: joke. I'm (laughs) laughing. (laughs) What is your end game after you tell someone their baby is ugly? I'm just trying to bring the conversation to an end. (laughs) Well, that ain't gonna bring it to an end, is it?
1: Let's be honest, not everybody's babies are cute. Do you know what I mean? No. No.
0: Was the baby genuinely ugly or was it just a way of getting out of the conversation? All
1: babies are ugly. It was boring. that that you know that squish face. Yeah. Oh right. Okay. Where you're, you're genetically hardwired to love and find that your baby. Yes, but no one else. But objectively speaking, yeah, is
0: disgusting. Well, they are boring. For
1: they the first so six boring. months they're really boring. It's so
0: ridiculous, man. Yeah, yeah. And Absolutely. I mean, I'm just my own two, and I love them now. Tonight, yeah. up to heaven and back, but yeah. it didn't do anything.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. in terms of what they're bringing to the table, it's nothing. No. No,
0: uh, mic stands. Yeah, I love this because I've been, you know, in front of quite a few mic stands in yeah. my life. Yeah. So what does yeah, it symbolise right, yeah. for you? Yeah, well, you know, keep getting jobs stolen from <laughs> you. We're not going to talk about that. Uh,
1: what I mean, we are absolutely smashing the diversity quite on this <laughs> podcast. You must only have to do white blokes now after this. I, like I'm double brown on this. I'm only those. People must be absolutely loving I've it. I've got man.
0: a list of middle-aged public schoolboy <laughs> white blokes yeah, who just, I'm going to uh, introduce. can we get
1: Romesh on this one? Because it's not because we want him, but it's what it opens up for the other bookings. We we no longer have to worry about it. <laughs> he's, he's brown, he's got a lazy eye. <laughs> We wouldn't have to book anyone else for the two series. He's a vegan. Yeah, he's a vegan. There you go, there's another one as well.
0: So the microphone stand, what does the microphone stand symbolise to you?
1: First of all, I've got a microphone stand in my garage, right? And this is... What mic? uh, SM58.
0: Oh, the SM58, the sure SM58. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, of course. It has to be. It has
0: to be. (laughs) Geekery! So
1: I've got that mic stand, but basically... Obviously, it's where I love stand up more than anything else. Like you know, obviously I do other stuff in my job, but stand up is the thing that I enjoy more than anything else I do. And also, I am better at every aspect of my job when I'm continuing to do stand up. It's like if I'm doing any type of show, if I I have to go and try and find somewhere to gig, otherwise I start to become worse. I feel at the other jobs that I'm doing. Right, it's just, that's your
0: gym routine.
1: Basically, yeah. Right. So the reason I've got a mic stand in my garage is sometimes when I've written a bit, I'll stand by the mic stand in my garage and just try and sort of get myself into the headspace of like what it's going to be like to deliver that. On your a, own? On my own in the in garage. In your garage? Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's weird. You stand weird, isn't there it? with a microphone looking at an imaginary audience. Have yeah. you have you painted them onto the inside of the no, garage door? I'm or do you, about you have it. mannequins in various states of what well, discontorted?
1: Listen, my marriage is on the knife edge as it is. If my wife walked into the garage and saw me talking to some people that I'd painted onto the wall, that would be it. So I haven't I haven't gone that far. <laughs> Because I don't that's write... That's amazing. I don't really write my stand-up. I don't write it word for word, anyway. I like When I go and do new material, it would be like five words on a bit of paper and then I talk around it and try and find the funny. And then sometimes I try and circumvent that by standing in my garage just thinking, how would I approach this? Whenever I do it, it helps, but I don't do it enough. You know how you just reacted when I told you that story? You were like, that's weird. I feel it's I, weird. No, but I get it. Yeah, but I it is weird. It. It's awkward. I like having a mic stand and a mic in the garage. I don't know why.
0: So are the words that you write down? Is it like being on a plane, mm. a kind of parachute regiment? But you will. Each word is like the parachute you'd throw out the plane, and then you jump out to try and catch it. So the word is a test to yourself. To you go, can I catch that word? Control that word and take that word into other places, or is it much more controlled than that? I know exactly what I'm doing. I've no, I don't, I
1: don't know what I'm doing. So, so, like, it'll be something I want to talk around, and then it might be, like, a couple of things that I think are interesting about that topic. But it won't be jokes. I don't write jokes now. I just write what I find interesting about that. And then I will just talk until I find the funny. It's so like, I'd go to a gig, and I won't know where the jokes are. I've, j- I've got, like, the topics, and so I think, I'm going to talk about this tonight. That's how I tend to write That's such
0: a high-risk strategy, isn't
1: it? Yes, and it is extremely punishing on people that see my material for the first time. because (laughs) Because sometimes you just don't find it. But the reason I do it like that is because when I started, I'd write the jokes out and then I'd go and do the jokes. And that's how a lot of people do it. There's nothing wrong with that. What I found for me was that I would only do as well as the jokes written on the page, whereas if I just riff sometimes you get given something that you wouldn't have otherwise had. And I'm convinced that i come up with stuff that I never would have come up with. You just start thinking and you're talking and then the audience go for something and you think, I'm going to push it further in that direction. They like where you're going with this idea, so you keep pushing it in that direction. If I'm sitting at a desk... I know if I think something's funny, but I don't know how the audience is going to respond. Whereas if I'm on stage and they laugh at a certain thing and don't laugh at another thing, I know I follow that thing more and see where it goes. And yeah, sometimes you, you just die on your ass. It's the truth of it. But like, it means better stuff at the end of it as a result.
0: So then how did you know you were being funny when you're sitting there writing a book?
1: I didn't. I didn't. It was less about being funny, it was more about just word count for me. No, I'm checking. Uh, I, 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 I've got, you've got an idea. I mean, I think, like, written, wor- <laughs> written word is different to stand-up. What I mean by that is there's a lot of stand-up that's funny in the performance of it, but if you read the words of that transcribed, it's not funny. You know, the comedy of it is in the performing of it. Yeah, you don't know if it's funny. I mean, I, was, I showed it to mates and stuff like that and got them to... But you've got an idea... If I'm being honest and saying what I really think, that it tends to be funnier than if I'm trying to look for some sort of gag. Do you know what I mean? Like, if I'm just sort of think about what I think, what I really think about something, and then it becomes easy to be funny, and that's what I try to do with a book. To a degree, you know, if I was truly honest about what I felt about everyone, it's end of a career. There's going to be a book, mate, in the future where I'm going to burn every single bridge. When I'm ready to leave, you are coming under it, mate. <laughs>
0: Uh, listen, I, I'm dreading now what I'm going to get from you. <laughs> Good grief. I know you've been storing that up for some time just because I eat honey. Do you do
1: this a lot? No, mate? I don't,
0: I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to drag you back into this. Okay. Because
1: you... I got a lot of abuse on Twitter the last time I talked about honey on your. Just so I'll just say this one thing honey is morally corrupt. Okay. That is all I'm going to say. Okay. It is wrong. And if you think. I'm overreacting. You need to take a look at yourself. Do
0: you know what? Last week, one of my neighbours came over and said I'd made a fool of myself at work. I said, OK, how do you do that? She said, well, I was joining in with everyone saying how bad palm oil was. And Mm. then I said, because it's it's terrible that they have to take the orangutans' hands off to extract the palm, the oil, from the palms of their hands.
1: Your neighbour said this? Yes. Where do you live what do, do you know? Do you know if my neighbour came up to me and said that to me, I would do you know what I think? I have to move because I am living in a neighbourhood where people think that. Do you know what I mean? What does that say about where my life is at? I, I don't want to live near people like that. You know
0: I mean? to, be, to be fair, she said she was felt humiliated at work when it was pointed out to her, palm How? oil does not come from the palms of orangutans. I,
1: I would be less worried about being humiliated. It'd just be grateful you've got a job in the first place. You start throwing around ideas like that. Do you know what I mean?
0: You've never made a mistake. Like right? Someone said to me that, because um, we, we started talking about this, someone said to me that their brother had convinced them when they were a kid that coconuts were bear eggs. <laughs>
1: I would argue that that is more plausible than the palm oil thing, <laughs> because like, 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 if you think about it, when people talk about when people talk about the orangutan thing, right? They go, "Oh, it's quite bad, isn't it? It's quite bad, right?" So so she's saying that there is a debate about whether cutting the hands off orangutans and squeezing them to extract the oil. No,
0: she thought that was horrific, to be fair. No, I, I maybe Yeah, but
1: what what then what does she think about society? Because because people are going, Oh, is it bad, palm oil? <laughs>
0: oh, I see.
1: Is it bad? She thinks that people are going, Is it bad? Yeah. It is bad. <laughs> orangutan's hands are being squeezed to make it. Like come on, mate.
0: Oh. I, I
1: would if I was if I was you Yeah, I would either move yep. or just give her a note saying it would be nice for my family and I if you moved.
0: Oh, and my wife get on quite well, so I'm <laughs> going to leave that. I think I would like you to read something from the book for me.
1: OK. Um, can I just say something? Um, the way you asked me to do that was rude. Like, come like, on. You went,
0: I would like you to... Can I just say something? I'm not your butler, all right? To be fair, I am from probably a better family from Sri Lanka. I knew it. Do you know know what? I've known
1: you have this belief in you ever since you've hidden it all this time. Uh, Okay, so I'm going to read to you, yeah? Yeah. (sighs) Okay. I remember as a child popping round to drop off a gift at the house of one of my mum's friends. It was a five-minute walk... If the gift was anything like the she got me, definitely not worth it. When I got there, I would say hello awkwardly, hand over the gift and return home. My mum's friend had other plans. I was ushered into the dining room where he insisted on giving me something to eat. I refused repeatedly, but I was told it would be an insult to leave without accepting his hospitality. What added to the tension was that he was making something for me that I'd never eaten before, a vegetable koicha. I was used to being fed Sri Lankan dishes I hadn't tried before, but it was 10.30am. I waited in the man's dining room while he prepared the coitcher. This took about half an hour. I remember sitting there silently cursing my mum. Errands were expected to be completed without complaint at my house. Mum would often remind us that doing an errand was a pretty small ask when you considered that she had brought us into the world. She would articulate that sentiment at length and at volume, and you could sometimes leave the room and complete the task while she was in the middle of one of her rants about you not doing anything. The man walked into the dining room with the meal he had prepared, which smelt very familiar. And that was probably because Quecha, rather than being a Sri Lankan speciality, was how he pronounced quiche.
0: (laughs) I've heard that so many times, read it so many times. It gets me every time. Have you tried (laughs) Quecha? God
1: knows how he pronounced Lorraine. Do you know what the worst thing was? He just sat there and watched me eat it.
0: For like 20 minutes? I don't know how long it takes you to eat a koicha, mate. <laughs> well, it depends. <laughs> depends. It's got... Uh, well, it wouldn't have been a ham koicha. I Actually was, saying that you weren't a vegan then, were
1: you? I wasn't a vegan then, though. no. You can't, no, he hadn't made me a vegan koicha. I, it's a regular koicha.
0: <laughs> Although maybe that koicha turned you into a vegan <laughs> after... Have that. you tried this one a on koicha Lorraine? <laughs> <laughs> he wouldn't have said that. He would have said a lorraine
1: Oh, mate, it was bad.
0: Um, Ramesh, thank you so much, man. So, no, thank you, mate. It's always mate. good to see you, man. It's always good to see listen,
1: you. Listen, I've said to you, whenever you need me to throw you a bone and turn up on one of these crap things you're doing, I'm I'm happy to do it, man. Do you know what I mean? It's just anything I can do to just give you a little shine, you know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, no, listen, I, listen. I love seeing you. I know you throw me these bones once in a mm, while, and it yeah. means, and I and I trade off, you know, the yes, fact that correct. that you are. You.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I trade off the fact that you are you. So, thank you. Yeah. I'm a big fan of yours. I, I'm <laughs> going to say this. I think you're brilliant at what you do. And and also...
0: What do you mean? The other day you said to me, I have no idea what you do.
1: Correct. Yeah. But I think you're brilliant at that, whatever it is. Uh, no, you're good. You are good. At what? Just went think... from
0: brilliant to good.
1: Yeah. In about I've got, 10 I, seconds. I, yeah, I've got to be honest. I sort of, of re-evaluated if I'm being a bit too sycophantic
0: <laughs> here. I, I make, I'm mugging myself off. Um brilliant straight out of Crowley is just so brilliant and funny Cheers, man and um and and you are too and um yes thank you
1: Th- thank you Nihal
0: yes yeah. and now i would like you to leave <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that's a- In three years, Stormzy has risen from one of the most promising musicians to a spokesperson for a generation. Rise Up is the story of how he got there.
1: Where I grew up and how I grew up really affected how I saw the world. This may be a bit of a generalisation, but I think for most people, having particular dreams and seeing a way to realise them is a normal thing. It might be something as simple as a dream job, for example, and recognising the steps that needed to be taken to get to that job. We didn't have that. Where I'm from, that doesn't really happen. People might have the skills they need to get their dream job, but they can't see a way to
0: get there. Rise Up is Stormzy's story, in his own words, with contributions from Team Hashtag Murky and the record of a journey unlike any other. The audiobook is available to download now, read by Stormzy and the contributors.